Will you turn with me, please, to the chapter that we read, Isaiah chapter 42, and uh, we might read again verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. I'm sure you're familiar with the chapter that we have before us and the other chapters round about how these words are addressed to the people of Israel in their captivity and uh, in uh, their um, uh, bondage in uh, Babylon. And uh, as you read through these chapters, you see that uh, there is a growing sense of unworthiness and uh, sinfulness amongst the people of God in that situation. And uh, they begin to wonder if God has perhaps passed them by. It is as though God has abandoned them in Babylon, and they're afraid that the grace of God has left them there forever. And uh, from chapter 40 onwards, there are words of great encouragement to these Babylonian exiles. They remind Israel of the fact that their own sin had brought them into their condition of bondage. But he also reminds them that God is going to deliver them. But it's not simply going to be a deliverance back into the promised land. These things are promised, no doubt, in the uh, narratives, in the chapters. But as we see from this chapter, God is going to reveal a new thing. God is going to uh, do something um, uh, amongst them in years to come. In the beginning of this restoration uh, of Israel to Babylon, he is going to Uh, lay the groundwork, as it were, for a great ingathering, and that was to be the ingathering of the Gentiles. That is really uh, what these verses are about. It's speaking about that prophecy, that prediction, that a time would come when the Gentiles would be gathered into the church. Now, you could imagine how that seemed even to the faithful Israelites, they themselves had been cast off. It seemed uh, to them that there was no hope for them. And uh, the prospect of seeing the church expanded and developed to include the Gentiles must have seemed inconceivable to them. And yet this was something that God was promising to do. And the reason for their discouragement, um, as we saw this morning, it's exactly the same They were looking to themselves. They were looking as a church to their own condition. They were in bondage. They were weak. They were despised. There seemed 
and there was no potential for growth among them. They could not undo their bondage themselves. They could not um, uh, gather themselves back to Palestine, let alone imagine the ingathering of the Gentiles. And God is giving this message through Isaiah then to an oppressed and struggling people, to a church that feels that it's got nothing to offer, the church that feels that there is so little prospect of improvement. Does that not sound very familiar? Does it not sound a bit like ourselves? Very often in our prayers and um, in our preaching, we hear of the desperate state of the world around us. Well, no one would dispute that. Things are in a poor and grim state. And yet, they have been in a poor and grim state in other days. They have been like this before. You think of the uh, times uh, before the Reformation came to Scotland, ensnared in papacy, blinded by superstition, uh, 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 caught up uh, even in pagan idolatry. And yet the Lord can change even a nation in a night. And so we have to learn a lesson from what the Scripture teaches us in this. And that is don't look to yourself for the growth of the church, for the blessing of the church, for the development and the ingathering of the church of Christ. Look to the Lord. And hence the connection with what we saw this morning. If we are those who um, are not condemned because of our union with Christ and we are to look to Christ here is an Old Testament emphasis of virtually the same thing behold my servant and that's not something that is unique or strange that is something that is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures all the Old Testament types and sacrifices are in effect exclamations from the mouth of God, behold my servant, behold the prefiguration of Christ, behold the sacrifice he is going to accomplish, behold these things. And the New Testament opens um, with those glorious words, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so here we are, we're in a, sa a situation not too dissimilar from Babylon of old, discouraged, no potential for growth, so much that is against us, a hostile world, nothing seems to be going right. And what does the scripture say to us? What does God say to us in the light of these things? Not wallow in your own misery, not measure your um, potential by your own abilities, but behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Look to the one that I have provided. And that's what we're going to do if God will enable us. Notice in the first place the one we are to behold. Behold my servant. God says that the object of our attention is to be the servant that he has um, uh, elected. 
whom he hath um, uh, uh, put his spirit upon. Israel had put their trust before the exile in military might. They had put their trust in political scheming and shenanigans. They tried all sorts of human um, answers to the complex difficulties, political, moral, social of the day, and they ended up in Babylon. And that's where all our schemes will end up if we do not behold the servant of God. And uh, so when Isaiah is proclaiming this as the object of their attention, um, they knew from experience the impotence of the strength of man, the impotence of uh, trying to uh, develop things, to uh, correct things through political expediency. And we have had our fill of these kind of things. We need a social reconstruction. We need a new educational system. We need a new political system, and so on and so forth. Our economic system needs to be overhauled. It's endless, but it never achieves the rebuilding um, uh, of the church of God. And so we are called to behold his servants. In this chapter, God has something hard to say about those who worship idols. He, um, uh, uh, he speaks at the end um, uh, of those who say, Ye are our gods. Um, and uh, he says, They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images. Now we might not bow down to stocks and stones. But our world is full of idols. And our hearts, as Calvin said, are little manufactories of idols. We produce idols at a moment's notice. We worship things other than God so easily. And here was God's message. Behold my servant. Don't look elsewhere. Do you remember in Jeremiah, the people, what did they do? They hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, when the water of life was freely available to them in Jesus Christ. Well, why does he warrant our attention? Why this call to behold the servant? Well, behold the servant because of his identity. Now, even in the words here, behold my servant whom I uphold, I should say that Throughout this chapter, or in parts of this chapter, it's not always easy to see. Um, uh, uh, you remember that the, the, uh, the, the, the servant is at one point um, an individual and at other points a corporate um, uh, body. It's standing for Israel. Um, but here in these verses, it is clear that it is a reference to an individual. And he is saying... He is one I uphold, he is my elect, my soul delights in him, I put my spirit upon him, and so on. What is his identity? Well, we can say unequivocally that it is Christ who is being spoken of. 
Because Christ himself in Matthew 12, verses 14 to 21, takes these very words and he applies them to himself. He is saying, I am the fulfillment. I am the one who is to be beheld. If you would seek the blessing of your souls, if you would seek the growth of the church, then I am the one you are to behold. He is the servant. He is the servant who is described also, for example, in Isaiah uh, 52 and 53. He is the suffering servant. But he is here described um, uh, as um, uh, the servant, and it's paralleled to the word elect. He's not just any old servant. He is the chosen servant. And that uh, brings to mind uh, the idea of an honorable position. God has chosen this servant for this work. And, uh, and we know that in Jesus Christ, there is the fulfillment of that. But what way is he um, uh, to be called um, a servant? Well, um, or when is he to be called a servant, perhaps we might say, he is to be called, or he is, to be seen, to be beheld as a servant in those times of discouragement. After all, this was a word given to captive Babylon. He is not simply to be the delight of the church at those high points in its life. He is to be the delight of the church of Christ at the low points as well, at the times when they cannot perceive the outworkings of God's providence in the times when there is persecution, in the times when nobody is listening to them, it seems, to them, we are to behold this servant of God as he is set forth. And you see how the Bible um, uh, emphasizes that. Look unto me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And uh, he is therefore one who um, uh, is to... Uh, warrant our attention because of who he is. He is Christ. And whatever Christ has to say, whatever Christ uh, is said about Christ, whatever truths are revealed about Christ, they are worthy of our understanding and our thought. But he is to be um, attended to because of his special arrangement that he has with the Father. He is, as I said, a chosen um, a, a servant. How was he chosen? Well, he was chosen um, uh, by covenant commitment. We are taken back to uh, before uh, time to that uh, covenant of redemption. We are taken back into the eternal councils. And we see the Father uh, choosing a people to himself. We see the Son willingly giving himself in the place as a surety for his people. There is a commitment between Father, Son, and Spirit that he would be the servant. And so it is that the Father elects him, sends him forth as the servant. The Father puts the graces upon him. The Son takes to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. The Spirit bestows all fullness of the Spirit upon him. 
And so you have this, um, uh, this covenantal commitment, a relationship that has a prior connection. It doesn't start with Christ coming into the world. It starts before the world began. And he was given in that commitment, in that covenantal arrangement, a work to do. And that work not only was to do with the gathering in of the Jews, but it also, as we see here, impacted on the Gentile world. And this um, uh, uh, part of Isaiah is looking more particularly to that. There are other parts of Isaiah that speak more of the restoration of the Jews. But here we have this promise of this ingathering of the Gentiles, something that must have seemed so um, inconceivable to many, and yet it shouldn't have. You think about it. How many of the Psalms have things like um, uh, all people that on earth do dwell? Sing to the Lord all people. You see, even in the Psalms, the, the Psalms are redolent with this idea that the salvation of God is much wider than simply Israel. There is going to be this ingathering. And so he is um, to be beheld because uh, we are contemplating him as having been given a work, but also as having done the work. And this, as you will see, describes the work that um, he was given to do. And then he is um, the servant by uh, divine choice. He is my servant, says the Father, and he is mine elect. He is God's answer to man's sin. He's not man's answer. Religion, uh, the Christian religion, is not the opiate of the people. The Christian religion is the revelation of God's answer to our plight, our uh, desperate need. And it comes in the form not of a series of laws. It comes not as a series of rituals. It comes in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, in whom it pleased God that all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. And so we have here this idea of a servant, and God has selected him, as it were. He's delighted in the servant. And all of this before he ever comes into the world. His um, uh, delight in uh, the uh, servant as the man of his right hand. And then there's the other side of the coin, isn't there? He is servant by voluntary choice and submission. Here is one who is co-equal with the Father. One who, um, uh, who was not ashamed to... Um, uh, uh, with his eternal power and Godhead, and yet he humbles himself, and he becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why? In order to save the likes of you and me. Dear friends, that should humble us. That should cause us to see something of the magnitude of the love and mercy of God as it is seen in Jesus Christ. He has not come into the world uh, to save 
the best of the species. He's not come into the world to save the rich and the um, privileged. He's come into the world to save sinners. And he undergoes what he undergoes, not through any coercion on the part of the Father. There is never a moment when the will of Christ is against what he is doing. He is embracing the will of God. Not my will, but thine be done. And so he comes um, uh, with uh, that willingness. I delight to do thy will, O Lord, we read in Psalm 40. And he comes specifically to prosecute a redemptive work. In the volume of the book it is written of me. He sees that his own ministry is a matter of revelation. He traces um, uh, that ministry in the scriptures, in the volume of the book it is written of me. And lest you query that, remember what he does with the two in the road to Emmaus. He opens up the scriptures from beginning to end. He tells them that these are the, the scriptures that speak of him. And so he can trace this, um, uh, this prosecution of a redemptive work right from the beginning. You say, but where is he in the Old Testament? Well, he is in the types and the sacrifices and the, um, uh, the uh, appearances uh, in the form of a man. But we must remember that these are part of his ministry. He is the prophet who reveals God. He is the high priest who intercedes for his people. Yes, even in Old Testament times. He is the king who rules over them. David could even see that. The Lord said unto my Lord, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Not just at the end of the Bible. He is the king of kings and lord of lords even at the beginning. And so he is coming to fulfill what is written in the word. Do you remember when he uh, comes to Capernaum, I think it was, he opens the scripture, um, I think it's Isaiah 62 or 66, I can't, I'm not quite sure, but he reads out the passage and he says, this day these things are fulfilled in your ears. And so he's fulfilling what he had promised to do and what had been predicted and promised that he would do. And so as we read these things, let us see them not as simply something spoken decades, centuries ago to captive Israel. He is still prosecuting the work. The things that are said of the prosecution of that work um, in Isaiah's day are still being carried out in our own day. This is ongoing and will be until the last saint of God is called in. Well, what is that servant's work? We move on to consider um, the servant's work. Well, the goal of this work is described here as he shall bring forth judgment uh, to the Gentiles. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles and then again he shall bring forth judgment 
unto truth. Notice verse 3. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Why was the servant sent? In order to save a people. What is he aiming to achieve? That salvation. What will be the outcome of his work? It will be success. We'll touch on these in a moment. You see, his goal is to establish the sovereign rule of God over all nations on the earth. To show it. To show it in a manifestly spiritual way. We know that God is supreme because he's sovereign. But as God brings in not just the Jews, but Gentiles from every kindred and tongue and people and nation, he is showing that his sovereign electing power is at work in these nations. What a wonder it is that tonight, all over the world, there are men and women, boys and girls, and they are worshipping the same Christ and the same God as we are worshipping. Does that not demonstrate the sovereign grace of God over all the nations of the world? And he is working towards that day. As we read of in the book of the Revelations, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that is still going on. He is still at work prosecuting that goal. Elsewhere we are told that he came to destroy the work of Satan. Because Satan had held the nations, the Gentile nations, in darkness. He held them in bondage. And with the coming of the gospel... There is a breaking of that stranglehold of Satan upon the nations of the world. And it's no, uh, it's no coincidence that when Christ sends out his people um, uh, after his resurrection, it is go into all the world and preach the gospel. And what do we read in the Acts of the Apostles? We read the of that unhindered access of the gospel into the hearts and minds of whomsoever God will save out of the Gentile nations, whether they be um, uh, uh, Ephesians or Corinthians or Romans or Greeks or barbarians. It matters not. The grace of God empowers the word of God and the word of God is the instrument of gathering in the people that he has chosen. And so he is establishing the kingdom when Christ comes into the world. Isn't that what he says? The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is come. And uh, that was the beginning of this work um, in a certain measure. But we see that he is working to fulfill not simply the establishment of the kingdom,
but also going further beyond David. He's going back to Abraham. And he is going to fulfill the Abrahamic promises that in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You remember how in that passage, Paul in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. It doesn't stop there. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles that ye might receive the Holy Ghost. You see, that's all part of this great work that is being prosecuted. And Christ, in coming into this world, has set in motion this ingathering of a people from the Gentile nations who will be brought in with the Jews and make one glorious church a bride presented uh, faultless before the throne with exceeding joy. So that's his goal. And how is this achieved? Well, I've already mentioned the Trinitarian cooperation, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all involved. God the Father, God the Son, and the agency of God the Holy Spirit. And they are working in tandem. There's no friction. There's no disagreement what a thought that is that the eternal God should be working to bring not just in the mass the Gentiles into his kingdom but you if you're a Christian me to bring individuals in that are drawn from these Gentile nations and God is behind it all. And the grace of God is undergirding its potency and its effectiveness. And then you think of um, this being achieved, not simply by Trinitarian cooperation, but you see it being achieved by prevenient grace. The isles shall wait uh, for his law. This almost seems to be looking down the um, vistas of time to um, this time when the Gentiles are going to be gathered in the day that comes when the gospel comes to the shores of um, Asia or Greece or Europe the isles shall wait for his law and uh, if we think about it we are reminded that the prevenient grace. Prevenient just means the going before grace. It's grace that goes before. Did you ever uh, think about your own conversion? And uh, at the time you thought everything happened at that one point when you were converted. But as you look back, you saw somebody spoke to me and told me about Christ. I remember seeing a wayside pulpit and it did something. You see, God in his prevenient grace often uses things like that. It might be we were brought up in the church. We heard our mothers and fathers praying. We um, uh, saw them. And through these examples, God is preparing us for that day when he called us to himself. 
You think of the time of the coming of Christ. There was no better time in the ancient world for the spread of the gospel than in the days of the Roman Empire. You could travel freely. You could travel relatively easily. All throughout the Roman Empire. We know um, all of us, don't we, from our school history, but the Roman roads, well, they were not just a myth. There was good communication, relatively speaking, between centres of population, thanks to that. Men and women could move about freely. And that's how the gospel went about. See how easily Paul and Silas, Paul and, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they go here and there without restriction. No passports. They just go. And the gospel spread. And within a very short time, the gospel came to these shores of ours. And men and women were called to Christ out of pagan darkness. All of this because of God's provenient grace. He made it easy. You think of the, um, uh, the fact that there, were, there was um, that common language, Greek. Easy to be understood. Also um, uh, uh, of all of these trade routes that existed where the gospel could go through. So he achieves this, we might say, by his providence. The Gentile world had been prepared by God. They had come to a point in their existence where they had lost confidence in the old false gods. There was a lot of questioning and God brings the gospel into that kind of uh, mixture. We might simply say it's the providence of God. And we all know that that is the case. God in his providence often works before we ever come to realize that he has been working. And it's only when the event happens that we realize and look back. And then... Um, uh, he um, achieves it by the servant in his dedication to the work. You see, we're again brought back away from the peripheral things to the servant. Behold my servant. Notice what we're told. We are told um, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. Are we not thankful that Christ came into the world and uh, persevered? Persevered to the end. Persevered to the cross. He didn't give up. And when Christ looked, there was no man to help. We moan and groan when we've got so little help um, in the church. Christ, he says, I looked and there was no man. I have trodden the winepress of the wrath of God alone. Are we not thankful for his persevering in this work of bringing judgment to the Gentiles? Are we not thankful for the fact that he uh, was faithful unto God even to the end, I have finished 
the work that thou gavest me to do. Thine they were, thou gavest them me, and I have kept them. And he still keeps us if we are Christ's. And how will he achieve this? Not just so much the, um, uh, uh, the method of his achieving this um, uh, by Trinitarian cooperation and provenient grace and persevering of the servant, but how? How do we see the servant acting? How do we see the servant working? Well, notice uh, what we're told um, in verse 2. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. You notice um, uh, that we might say that he um, uh, achieves this work progressively. We are told that he will do these things that we've just read till he have set judgment in the earth. This is a progressive work. This is something um, uh, that is both true generally. The church didn't explode all over the world in one night. The church grew by the spread of the gospel. It was like Jesus taught, like the mustard seed or the yeast, or any of these parables that speak of the smallness growing. That is how it is generally, but it's true individually. Dear Christian friend, you may not be what you want to be as a Christian. You may see much in your life that is lacking. You may feel that you have not grown in grace as you should. But the question is, is the seed growing? Is there the seed there? Has Christ uh, planted that seed in you? Do you have that seed in your heart? Again, referring to what I said this morning, look to Christ, not to your own failures. Again, we are told not only that he will establish this work progressively, but he will work humbly. Notice, he will not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. Cast your mind to Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. Do you see the humility do you see the uh, gentleness? He carries the lambs in his bosom. He gently leads those that are with young. There is in the work of Christ a true godly gentleness in the way he works in the hearts of his people. He will not jeopardize the work that has been committed to him for the sake of his own glory. Ephesians 2, uh, sorry, Philippians 2 tells us that. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. 
the glory that he had with the Father is not allowed by Christ to interfere with the humility that the servant must descend into. It's a wonderful thought that the glory of Christ and yet the humiliation of our Saviour. And he pastors his people gently. Again, in uh, view of the coming uh, communion service, remember what we are told here. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he shall not quench. I know that I'm sure that there are those of you and that's exactly what you feel like a bruised reed. You've got nothing to boast of. You can hardly hold your head up. A smoking flax. It seems as though all spiritual life is on the edge of being snuffed out. And he says, a bruised reed I will not break. And the smoking flax I will not quench. What a blessed truth that is. The care, the compassion. Christ has a pastor's heart for the weak and fainting. You see, the question that you must ask is not, have I got great faith? It's, do I trust in Jesus? Do I have faith? Do I trust in Jesus? And Jesus will not allow the weakest of his saints to be lost. You might be a poor and pathetic um, uh, example of a Christian. But if you have the grace of God in your heart, dear friends, these words are as applicable to you as to the greatest saint here. And so we are encouraged of the way he deals with us. He's got this great work to do. He's going to bring a people to his father. He's going to save Gentiles as well as Jews. And he's going to do it in such a way that he doesn't trample over us. He's going to do it in such a way as to tenderly care for us. And is that not what we have experienced? Have we not experienced the tenderness of Jesus Christ towards us? The patience the long-suffering, the uh, tenderness, the kindness of our Saviour. And so this is the work that he is prosecuting. But will he succeed? He shall not fail. Of course he'll succeed. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. The work is not easy. He doesn't succeed because this is an easy job. Never was there a task given to anyone that was remotely as hard and as difficult as this task. How do you bring hell-deserving sinners into the presence of God so that they can stand acceptable before him? And he does it. He succeeds. He saves. He dismisses sin. And there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 
And how did he do it? Because God fully equipped him for the work. Everything that the Savior needed to carry out this work, to prosecute this great work, he receives of God through the Spirit. Behold my servant whom I uphold. I have put my Spirit upon him. What a wonderful truth that is. You see again this Trinitarian cooperation. There you see Christ in his frailty and weakness as a man before the wrath of God. But God is in it. God the Father is in it. And God the Spirit is in it. And everything that's necessary for him to bear the wrath of God and to carry away the sinner's sin is provided by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold my servant. He is graciously upheld by his Father. Dear friends, do you think that God will not uphold you having upheld his son. <clears throat> Do you remember Peter when he was speaking about kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time? He doesn't say just kept by the power of faith because that sort of is open-ended. What if he doesn't? It's kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, Ah, but what if I fall after that? Ready to be revealed in the last time. All will be preserved until they're there at the throne of grace, accepted in the beloved. So the victory is assured. He shall bring forth judgment. What discourages us today never discourages God. What discouraged us today never discouraged Christ. He came, he completed the work, and he is now reigning supreme. There is no aspect of the church's redemption that is left in doubt. <coughs> you, if you're in Christ, are as safe and secure as God is on his throne in heaven. Because you are there in Christ. Raised together with him. Seated together with him in the heavenly places. What more can you ask for? Look to yourself. And you'll have a miserable existence. Behold the servant. And rejoice. Let us pray. <laughs> Father, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ and for all that He has accomplished. And we thank Thee for the encouraging words of Thy uh, Scripture. And we pray that Thou wilt enable us to behold Thy servant. What a wonderful, wonderful servant Thou hast set before us. And we ask that we might adore Him and love Him and serve Him and obey Him. Enable us then to behold him, 
and pardon us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us conclude singing from Psalm 67, the first version of the psalm, Psalm 67. Lord, bless and pity us. Shine on us with thy face, that the earth thy way and nations all may know thy saving grace. Let people praise thee, Lord. Let people all thee praise. Oh, let the nations be glad in songs their voices raise. The whole of the psalm to God's praise. Lord bless and for the benediction. <coughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.